as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. But before we jump into the sermon together today, I've got a couple of announcements for you. Um, if you got the email this week, if you're a part of our membership and receive our weekly newsletter, you saw in there that we'd be making an announcement today about some elder candidates uh, back in September of 2019. We asked you, the membership of our church, to nominate uh, those men you believe to be qualified based upon their character, on their convictions, on their competencies to serve as elders in the life of our church body. And so we received a total of five nominations. And as we worked through follow-up conversations uh, with those who had been nominated, three of those men recused themselves from that, just citing issues of their available time um, or seasons of life that they might find themselves in, other demands that they had, whether it be on, on, on their lives, whether it be work or family obligations, they just could not uh, envision investing the kind of time necessary to shepherd well in the life of our church. But two of those men uh, were willing to enter the process with us. And so in November of 2019, our current elders, Steve Welch, Stanley John, and myself, we invited uh, Brian Rowe, who was nominated to serve as an elder in the life of our church, and Matt Simmons, who was nominated to serve as an elder in the life of our church. We invited them to begin to meet with us. And so from November through July, uh, mid-July, where we find ourselves today, uh, Brian and Matt have been meeting with us as an elder body. Uh, they've been processing decisions with us, Either, even though neither one of them had a vote on any matters that we had to bring to uh, a vote to make decisions on. Uh, they've been weighing in their opinions and praying with us and counseling and giving insight from Scripture and their own experiences. And so as we, as the existing elders, uh, sat with them for these last nine months and heard how they processed decisions, considered their character and their convictions, uh, the competencies that they bring to the table, uh, we've come to a place uh, where we want to put them forward to you for your affirmation to serve as elders in the life of our church. Um, our bylaws, uh, the, the process outlined by our bylaws is that existing elders would bring them up for appointment and then that our congregation would vote to affirm them. And so this serves as public notice of our intention to put them forward as elders in the life of our church. And uh, what our bylaws call for is a two-week notice, essentially, but we're going to give you two months' worth of notice uh, because these are strange days that we're living in. It's an odd time. And so when the church is not able to gather physically, um, it just we felt like it would just be wise to extend that period out some. And so from now, between this Sunday, July 19th, and the second Sunday of September, uh, we're going to give you plenty of space to talk with Brian and Matt. Uh, they are not unknown commodities in the life of our church. Matt has led a life group uh, for a number of, uh, uh, of months, even over a year here now at Redeemer. They've been with us as members, he and Abby, for two years. Uh, and then Brian has obviously been a staff member here with us since 20, January of 2017. He's led life groups. He now oversees um, our worship ministry, our groups ministry, and our student ministry. Uh, he and his wife Angela have one uh, daughter. And so uh, we're excited to put them forward to you and give you space and time to have conversations with them, uh, to ask them questions, but also maybe to bring any concerns that you may have about them to our current elders, to myself, to Steve, or to Stanley. 
And so you can ask questions about the process. You can ask questions about their particular character or convictions. You can encourage them. Uh, You can encourage us should you see uh, the opportunity to do so and putting them forward. But between now and the second Sunday of September, there'll be plenty of space for you to have those conversations. And then whether we're able to gather physically or not, on the second Sunday of September, we will be moving forward with a vote. It may be different than what we've ever seen before. Um, we may have maybe a hybrid vote with some in person and some online. It may be a fully virtual vote with all of it online. We have to figure that out as we get closer to that date. Uh, but we look forward to um, hearing from you and the process and, Lord willing, uh, moving forward with the installation of two new elders in the life of our church. So if you have any questions or concerns about that, feel free to contact me, contact Steve, or contact Stanley. In addition, this Sunday uh, is my last Sunday to be preaching uh, for the next four weeks. As you saw on that email as well, uh, Steve will be up next week as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of Mark. And then in subsequent weeks, we'll hear from Stanley John and Brian Rowe and Keith West as well over the course of this time as they open God's Word for us and teach So I'm looking forward to a little bit of time off from sermon preparation. It's not that I'm taking four weeks of vacation. I'll still be available, still be around, still be at elders meetings, still be doing staff meetings, still having uh, shepherding responsibilities in life with that church. I just won't be preaching. And so it'll give those men an opportunity to open the scriptures for us and unfold the beauties of Christ from them, but also for me to have a little bit of time to recharge and refresh as we move into a fresh season of ministry this fall. So that said, if you want to open the Bible with me to Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 9, as we continue to work our way through Mark's gospel, we find ourselves in Mark 9, 14 to 29, a lengthy text this morning. So I'll read it for us. It'll be on the screen here as well as we read together if you don't have it open there in front of you. And then we'll move into taking a look at what Mark has to say to us about pushing back darkness and Uh, pushing back the prevailing forces of evil and rulers and principalities in our, not only in our culture, but also at times that are active in the life of the church. So in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, let's read together. And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and Peter, James and John coming down the mountain after Jesus had been transfigured. When they came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cries out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Several months ago, in the wake of George Floyd's death, under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, Dr. Tony Evans, the, one of the founders and pastors of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, he responded with what I thought to be a brilliant address, a 15-minute address that you can still find probably on their church's website or on YouTube, and I would highly commend it to you. And during that address, he made this statement. He said, we are living in the midst of a physical pandemic. And alongside of a physical pandemic, we are living in the midst of a cultural and social pandemic. And he says, we're in the midst of a cultural and social pandemic because we have long been in a spiritual pandemic. And I want you to know that his words rang true several months ago and continue to ring true today. When you look at the situation that we find ourselves in today, we are indeed in the midst of a physical pandemic. See, COVID-19, it's it's not a surprise to any of you whenever I say this, that it has exploded across our nation with a second surge over the course of these last six weeks. As there's record numbers of case counts and hospitalizations have begun to rise again, And deaths have begun to rise again as a response to this virus as it continues to spread. So we're still living in the midst of a physical pandemic. And as you consider the situation we find ourselves in today, we are indeed still in the midst of a cultural and social pandemic. Because there is division within our society from top to bottom. There's division across ideological lines with competing visions for the future and heart of our nation. There's division across geographic lines from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt to the Bible Belt. There's division across economic lines as you have frontline workers and fallback workers. Okay, those who are able to stay at home and those who cannot stay at home. There's a vision across the ethnic lines as, once again, monuments have come to the front and center of our nation's social consciousness. And there's a debate over what should be left up and what should be taken down. There's a division across political lines, particularly in this election cycle. Listen, every election year, there is political divisions that arise again. But this one, perhaps more than any other within my lifetime, has been rife with division. There's division between Democrats and Republicans and independents. See, when you look at the situation that we find ourselves in today, we're still living in the midst of this cultural, political, and social pandemic. 
But I want you to know that whenever you look at the situation where we find ourselves today, we are still in the midst of a spiritual pandemic. Because not only is there division in our culture, but there is division within the church. Listen, over a whole host of issues that have divided the culture seem to be dividing the church as well. I heard one pastor talking this week about how there are some churches that have now gone to an 8.30 masked service and a 10.30 unmasked service. It's like masks have become the new worship style, right? right you got a contemporary service and a traditional service. you got a masked service and an unmasked service. During our conversation this week, a phone call with another local church pastor that I had, he recounted how when they did the same thing that we did, and took the governor's recommendation and strongly encouraged masks for their public services, he had one member call him and say, how could you infringe on our liberties by doing this, right? Yet he's waving the whole don't tread on me flag. And then minutes later, another member calls him and says, I don't know how you can be a Christian and not wear a mask. You need to call this person that I saw post on their social media account and address their, address their lack of love for their neighbor." Now listen, lest you think this is only an issue in other churches, over the course of these last several months, when we began to discuss regathering, there were those who said, I can't believe it took us so long, and those who said, I can't believe we're trying to meet again so soon. Over the last several months, I've had numerous conversations with members of our church, and during those conversations, some people, when we began to discuss Masks, they said, we're not going to have to wear a mask, are we? And others said, I can't believe we're not going to make them a mandate. Over the last several months, in response to addressing the racial tensions around us, listen, I've been accused of playing politics from the pulpit and teaching lies and falsehood. I've had others with similar backgrounds affirm some of the things that I've read and some of the things that I've said. And they said, listen, I've heard politics from the pulpit and what you did, I don't think that was it. And still others have said, I affirm what you said, but you didn't go far enough. You didn't say enough. There's so much more that's left to be said. And listen, just so you think I'm not playing the world's tiniest violin up here, okay? And like trying to drum up sympathy for myself. In my conversation with my friend, another local pastor this week, I said, listen, man, this is what we signed up for, isn't it? Right? To have people on one side and people on the other who are going to be critiquing and criticizing, affirming, right? It's a mixed bag. But listen, all of this I say to you, not so you would feel sorry for me, but just to show you that there's division within the church. Not just other churches, not just mega churches, not just churches in blue states, but churches here in this red state and churches in this red county and our church. There are those of us wrestling with spirits of judgment. They're wrestling with frustrations that we have with our brothers and sisters. See, we're living not only in a day in which the culture is divided, but the church tends to be divided along the same lines the culture is. And listen, I want to tell you something as your pastor this morning. What concerns me most is not that the culture is raging with divisions and rife with with, with disagreements, but that the church is. And listen, whether those divisions or whether those state, whether those thoughts are ever expressed or whether they are just suppressed and they are, they become internalized, they have the potential, the potential to destroy Christ's body. 
I'm more concerned over a divided church, over the same fault lines that divide the nation. And because I want you to know that underneath all of this, all of this is the pervasive presence of powers and principalities. See, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen, if we're fighting a battle, church, for the unity, for the sake of, of camaraderie, for the sake of the mission of the church, if there is a battle that's being waged right now, and some of us are tempted to dismiss the seriousness of that battle, but I want you to know that one of these days, we're going to emerge into a new normal, and when we emerge into that new normal, and we once again come around the Lord's table together, I want us to be able to share in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, not with bitterness in our hearts toward one another over what our particular perspectives were as we went through this pandemic. And listen, there is nothing that the enemy would love more than right now than to divide us over all of these fault lines that are erupting within our culture. And that is a spiritual issue. And if the battle that we're fighting is not one with weapons of flesh and blood, but we're fighting against cosmic powers, authorities, and forces of evil, that's what the Apostle Paul says, then what do we need? I'm here this morning to tell you that what we need in the face of dark and demonic opposition is resurrection power. Resurrection power. I want you to notice in this text, whenever Jesus and Peter and James and John, whenever they come down the mountain, they walk like th th this is so typical of life, isn't it? Whenever you have this mountaintop experience. Okay, and this is kind of where our church was over the course of the last 18 months. We've experienced significant amounts of growth. God was adding people to our number. We've seen some come to faith in Jesus, some baptized, new life groups being started, people in integrating into community. It had been a mountaintop experience for us. But so often those mountaintop experiences are followed by challenges as we come down into the valley. Whenever Jesus comes down into the valley with Peter, James, and John, he finds the rest of the disciples there in an argument with the scribes who had come looking for dirt on Jesus so that they might bring formal charges against him. So the rest of the disciples are in an argument with the scribes over their inability to cast out this demon that a father had brought his son to the disciples looking for Jesus and the disciples could do nothing about this child's situation. They were impotent in that moment. And so, the, so when Jesus comes down right, and he sees the crowd... And, and the crowd begins to gather around him. They, they, they see Jesus, and so they're just like drawn to him. 
And once Jesus is able to determine what's going on, he instructs the disciples to bring the child to him. He asks several questions of the father. And as the crowd begins to build and surge around him, he cast out the spirit. In verse 25, he says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. I want you to notice how Jesus addresses the dark and demonic forces terrorizing the life of this child. First, he does exercise authority, and he commands the spirit to come out and stay out. Because Jesus has the authority to command those dark and demonic spirits. Because although they have power, Jesus has more. But second, the spirit comes out with crying and by convulsing in the child terribly. And it results with the child at best being in a coma. And at worst, literally being a corpse. And then third, Jesus takes the child by the hand. And just like he did with Jairus' daughter back in chapter 5... He lifts the child, and the child awakes and rises up. See, Jesus delivers from the power and presence of Satan and his demons through death and resurrection. Through death and resurrection. And what takes place here, church, prefigures what would take place in Mark chapter 15 and Mark chapter 16, where Jesus would defeat Satan and his demons through his own death and resurrection. See, what takes place whenever Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark chapter 5 and then hear this man's son from either being in a coma or a corpse raises him to life in vibrancy and fullness and restores him to health. What takes place is Jesus is overthrowing the power and the authority of Satan and his demons through death and resurrection. And all that prefigures what he would do himself at the cross and through the rolling away of the stone and the empty tomb. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. See, earlier this week, uh, many of you may have seen this picture floating around the internet, but I saw it from Ray Ortland, who's an older seasoned pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. And he tweeted out this photo of a young boy who had been severely mauled by a dog. And he was mauled in the act of protecting his younger sister. See, what this young man did, I know it's a difficult picture to put your eyes on, to see his injuries and the, the stitches, how he, was, he had to be pieced back together. It's a difficult picture to look at. But this young man put himself between the dog and his little sister in order to protect her from this vicious enemy that would seek to do her harm, that would seek to destroy her. And Ray Ortland, he captured the picture in his tweet with these words. He says, you saved your sister from an attacking dog, though you knew you'd get hurt. I'm so proud of you, young man. Keep on, keep on. And this hard picture captures this older brother who put himself between the dog and his younger sister at the risk of his life, knowing it would do him harm. And yet simultaneously, that picture, though it's hard to look at it, causes us to rise up with a sense of pride and honor for that young man and his willingness to put himself in a position of risk for the sake of one that he loved. And listen, church, I want you to know something. 
that Jesus Christ not only risked his life for us, but he gave his life for us. And he didn't put himself between us and a Doberman, right? Or us and a Rottweiler or a pit bull. He put himself between us and a lion that is prowling and seeking to devour with fangs that could rip us limb from limb and claws that could shred the flesh off of our bones. He put himself between us And our great enemy, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He was devoured in our place so that we might be saved from Satan's power. And not only did he die, but listen, church, he was raised from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's the way that God deals with the forces of evil in this present age is through death and resurrection. He overthrows and overcomes them. And the promise of the gospel to you and I, church, is this. That the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is at our fingertips. Listen, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the apostle Paul says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit, the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave, Paul says, is active and alive in those who have been rescued from Satan's power, rescued from Satan's dominion, rescued from the darkness of demonic oppression. Jesus has rescued us from that, not only to make us neutral, but powerful, filled with his Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus, after his resurrection, before his ascension, when he appears to his apostles, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, when the Spirit shows up, he shows up in power for you to testify to the fact that I was devoured in your place. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking of his great ambition, of his great aim, he says, It is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And in fact, whenever God calls the Apostle Paul, Paul recounts that experience in Acts chapter 26, verses 15 and 18. And he recounts having seen Jesus and crying out to Jesus, Who are you? And Jesus responds, I am the one whom you are persecuting. Rise and stand on your feet. I'm appointing you as a servant to bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you. He says, I've delivered you from your people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, the promise of the gospel is not that you get forgiveness, although you do. The promise of the gospel is not that you have your conscience cleansed, although it is. 
The promise of the gospel is not only that you can now live free from guilt and shame, although you can, but the promise of the gospel also includes the invasion of power into your life to be witnesses to the glories of Christ. To overcome and overthrow the darkness and to push it back. This is what's promised through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And listen, church, if you and I have any hope of navigating the divisive climate of our culture and even within our church, big C church, little C church, then we need this resurrection power. But let me ask you a question. What I'm, what I'm describing, listen, I just want to go ahead and confess that I see too little of in my own life. And I see too little of in our church. So why is that? Why is it that we claim there's power in the person of Jesus through the presence of this Holy Spirit, but we see so little of it? Why don't we see strongholds being destroyed? Why don't we see generational sin being unraveled? Why don't we see personal sin being put to death in our lives? Why aren't we having the kind of impact on the community around us and seeing people formed into the likeness of Christ in real and sometimes very, very radical ways? And listen, perhaps one reason is because to a large degree, the big C church, the evangelical church, the conservative church has attempted to access power, listen, through politics rather than prayer. And I want you to know something, church, that prayerlessness equals powerlessness. That's what Jesus says in this text. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, when we got uh, this little device that we sit on our, our counter in our kitchen uh, a couple of years ago for Christmas called a Google Home, okay? And our kids love to ask Google Home questions about all kinds of things, right? Like um, animals around the world, or they like to ask Google Home questions. Like Google, they say, hey, Google, right? Um, you know, what, what is pie? Yeah, right, three point, whatever, 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 all, all, all the way on down to infinity, right? I'm thinking less of that kind of pie and more like apple, you know what I'm saying, or peach, okay? It was a good recipe. So we asked for recipes from Google, right? We asked Google, the, the, the biggest thing Google helps us do in our house oftentimes is set timers, okay? Hey, Google, set a timer for 15 minutes for the tater tots that are in the oven. Hey, Google, set a timer, right, for screen time for our kids and how long before they have to get off of whatever device they're playing on. Hey, Google, set a timer for, you know, 20 minutes until we have to leave the house to get where we need to go on time. So Google's a very helpful device, okay? It gives us recipes, sets timers, lets my kids explore the world from their own kitchen. But listen, that Google Home, whenever it is offline, okay, so whenever there's a problem with our internet, okay, and whenever our internet goes down, the Wi-Fi crashes, I want you to know that that, you know, $120 little piece of plastic with all kinds of wiring and circuitry inside becomes impotent, it becomes useless, it becomes pointless. The only thing it is good for without a connection to the internet is to be a paperweight. That's all you can use it for. 
right? Because though it has incredible capacity and all the circuitry still in the right places, or everything's still wired correctly without a connection to the internet, it becomes worthless. And listen, church, I want you to know the same is true of you and I. Listen, in the church, we can have all the principles in the right places and still lack power. In the church, we can do all, we can dot all our theological I's and cross all our theological T's and still lack power. We can organize ministries and meetings. We can have Bible studies and we can have fellowship meetings. We can have retreats. We can have camps. We can host dinners. We can do dances. We can do all kinds of things, be filled with all kinds of activity, but still lack power. See, all the circuitry can be present, but the power can be absent. And that's what the disciples who are at the bottom of the mountain have been experiencing. In verses 28 and 29, when Jesus and the disciples withdraw into a home, see, these disciples, they asked Jesus in a very private setting why they could not drive out the demon that was terrorizing the child. And Jesus' response is telling, he says this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, Jesus says, listen, there are some things that principles, they they can't fix. There are some things that policies will not repair. There are some things that politics cannot address. There are some things that only prayer can heal. There are some things that only prayer can fix. And Jesus says, this kind, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What is this kind? Listen, there's at least three things, I think, clues from the text that give us an indication of what this kind of demonic force, demonic presence in the life of this child is. First of all, it's a terrorizing presence. See, this demon terrorizes the man's son. All right? For it, 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 it seeks... Uh, to in fact, we're, we're told in the text, in fact, that, that almost that exact language is used. It is what terror, fear inducing in the life of this child. All right, and this kind of evil, warped, satanic, demonic presence is fear or terror inducing. And listen, underneath all the terror inducing realities of our lives, I want you to know oftentimes are idols and under those idols are dark and evil forces that leverage those idols to bring about impotence in our lives. See, many of us think that our idols are just neutral things, but I want you to know they are not neutral, but they are they are they ultimately end up terrorizing our lives and end up resulting in us being just like them, lifeless and impotent. This kind, you see, induces fear. See, there, there are some of us who don't want to lean into perhaps some of the, the divisions within our church and say, if we just ignore those things, they'll go away, right? We don't want to lean into the divisions within our culture and be a shining light or beacon because we think if we just ignore them, they'll just eventually recede into the background. And oftentimes I wonder, I wonder if the reason that we choose to adopt that particular perspective is out of a fear of man and the quest for human approval. We just want people that we know to like us 
and we're afraid that they might reject us. We're afraid they might look down upon us. We're afraid that they might critique us or criticize us. And listen, I want you to know underneath that fear is a force that at times can hold us captive in the same way that it did this child. Not only is it a terrorizing kind, but a tenured kind. You see, whenever a, a, a professor in the academic world, whenever they receive tenure, it, it means they've been there a really, really long time. Okay? A really long time. And this demon has impacted the man's son since his childhood. When Jesus asked how long this has been going on, the man says for years, since he was a child. And so this has been something that he's lived with. He's been under this influence, under this oppression for years in his life. And see, there are some of us who, because of patterns in our lives, because of patterns in our decision-making, we have put ourselves in positions where there's been years of influence. There's been years of oppression. We've learned to handle our sin. We've learned to handle our life and our decision-making processes in ways that are unhealthy. And, as a, and so we keep those things hidden and under the surface. And as a result, it causes all kinds of destruction and damage because it's all we know how to do because we've done it for so long. So it's tenured. And underneath that tenure, I want you to know, is a terrorizing Spirit. But third, not only is it terrorizing and tenure, but it's destructive. See, the, we're told that the, the man tells Jesus, this, this demon has tried to burn him and has tried to drown him. In other words, the demon's not there, right, to give him his best life. The demon is there to destroy him, to rip him limb from limb as an expression of the one that this demon serves, the prince of the power of the air, the lion that's seeking to devour and is on the prowl, he wants to destroy because that's where the thief comes, Jesus says in John chapter 10. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So the demon's trying to destroy him. And I want you to know, church, there is nothing more destructive to the witness of Christ in the world the witness that we receive power to be, then division within the church along the fault lines that divide the culture. There's nothing more destructive than that. And so a life without prayer is powerless. But so also is a church powerless without prayer. Jesus says this kind. Things that are deep-seated. Strongholds that have emerged. Things that have been passed down from generation to generation. This kind, this tenured and terrorizing and destructive, it does not come out any other way. Does it come out through, 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 uh, through any human means? comes out only through prayer. So that's what we need, the kind of power that we need. How do we access this resurrection power through prayer? First thing, I'll give you two of them and then I'm done. First one, we have to recognize your helplessness. So there's one person in the text who gets this, and it's the father of the child. 
there's this famous dialogue that he has with Jesus. Listen, in, chapter, uh, in the chapter, in verse 20 and following, it says, and they brought the boy to Jesus. You know, he has this dialogue with Jesus, and Jesus asks, how long has it been going on? What's it been doing to him? The father recounts all the, the things, and Jesus says, bring him to me. In verse 20, he says, that they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it convulsed him. He fell on the ground, foamed at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father, right, how long has it been happening from his childhood? It's cast him into water and fire to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. And Jesus says, if? If, if you can, all things are possible, he says, for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The father says, if you can do anything, Jesus, I mean, I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't do anything about him. If you can, and Jesus says, if, if, everything is possible. Everything, for, for those who have the faith of a mustard seed, they can move mount. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this man's doubts. When the man says, if you can help, when he says, help my unbelief, Jesus doesn't look at the man and say, ha, Listen, dude, get your act together. Who do you think I am? I'm the glory of God in human form. That's what you should have seen last week in the transfiguration account. So how dare you come before me with your doubts? Purify your heart. Confess all known sin. Go and work out all of your doubts and all of your unbelief before you come back to me. And when you're ready to come to me and you're ready to really surrender to me, when you're really ready to turn everything over in your life to me, when you worked out all of your doubt from your heart, then you could come with a pure heart. Then you can ask for deliverance. Then you can ask for healing. Then you can ask for blessing. Is that what Jesus says? I don't think so. That's not how he responds because that's not how relationship with God works. See, relationship with God does not begin with, I've been faithful, I've lived a pretty good life, right? Now bless me. Bless me. In fact, this is the opposite of faith in God. That is faith in you. In other words, here's my record. I've done a pretty good job. I've been a pretty upstanding citizen. Now bless me, reward me. That's not faith in Jesus. That's faith in you. That's being your own savior, deliverer, and healer. And yet this man says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. I can't muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, Jesus. But help me. I'm helpless. I can do nothing to alleviate my situation. I'm in desperate need of your help, Jesus. See what that is? That's faith in Jesus and not in me. That's saving faith. That's the doorway. Listen, church, the doorway into a relationship with God. And I want you to know something. It's not only the doorway into a relationship with God, but it's a pathway down which we walk with God once we have relationship with him. Always acknowledging our helplessness. Because you see, as soon as you come to terms with your helplessness, Jesus is able to bring his power to bear in and through your life. 
Because finally your faith is no longer in you, but in him. It's in him. See, the first step towards seeing this power in action in our church, in your life, in our world, is not, and I'm not downplaying the importance of holiness here, but it's not holiness. It is actually helplessness. Saying, I'm not trusting in myself, but I'm trusting in you because only you can do what needs to be done in me, what needs to be done in us. I'm helpless to bring about the kind of real lasting change that's needed in my heart. I'm helpless to bring about that kind of change in my spouse. I'm helpless to bring about that kind of change in my children. And listen, some of you are being are riddled with challenges right now in your home, with your spouse, with your kids, in your own heart, with your neighbors with other church members, with other family. See, until you recognize you're helpless to overthrow the fear of man, and you're helpless to unravel, right, the destructive effects of generational sin, you're helpless to deal and begin to pull apart issues of identity politics and true Christian identity, that you're helpless to help separate those out on your own and be discerning enough. And you say, God, help me, help us as we walk this path together as brothers and sisters, not divided, but united and filled with power. God, only you can do this. I can't do it. I'm not trusting in my perspective. I'm not trusting in my policies. I'm not trusting in my principles. God, I'm trusting in you as a person to bring about the kind of change that is needed. I'm helpless. Help me. God, help us. That's the first step. Recognizing your helplessness. But then secondly, prioritize prayer. Right, remember in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. For Jesus to say this, it must mean that the disciples had failed to recognize their own helplessness in the situation and call out to God. Listen, maybe they thought their personality was going to win the day rather than prayer. Maybe they thought their previous experiences was going to win the day rather than prayer. Like, like I've seen stuff like this before. I know how to handle that. This is what you do. One, two, three, boom, move forward. We don't need to pray. This is what we need to do. Maybe they thought their intellect and their insight would win the day rather than prayer. But Jesus says, listen, it's not your personality. It's not your previous experiences. It's not your intellect or your insight, but it's prayer that wins the day. Prayer. Prayer is pulling the boat closer to the dock and the dock closer to the boat. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A few years ago, I I took my brother fishing uh, on a lake that he and I grew up fishing on. And uh, on on, on one of the days on on the trip, we had to refuel the boat. And so instead of pulling it out, we went up to one of the gas docks there, one of the marinas. And so as we pulled up to the gas dock, my brothers if you've never seen him or met him before, he's about 6'3", okay, he, he got the stature, I got the skill, that's what I like to say, right? And so he's much larger than I am, uh, but he's about 6'3", he's about uh, 2'10 or so, um, but he's, a, he's, a, he's much taller than I am. And so as we got close to the dock, he overestimated his reach 
Okay, because what, as we pulled up to that gas dock, he had one foot fl- planted firmly on the dock of the boat or the deck of the boat, and then he tried to step off of the deck of the boat onto the dock when we were a little too far away from the dock for him to do that. And so as he stepped off, he barely grabbed the boat dock, and now he's got one foot on the boat deck and one foot on the boat dock, and he's straddled between these two places. And because of his momentum pushing off of the deck onto the dock, what's the boat doing? It's drifting away from the dock. And so here he is, a grown man, 6'3", straddling between these two platforms trying to leverage every core muscle in his body. And all of those muscles, I don't know what they're called, but those machines you do at the gym, you know, where you kind of do this number, butterflies, he's trying to pull that boat back to the dock. And listen, I want you to know, that is a picture of prayer. It's a picture of prayer. Because see, that dock is fixed to the bank. It's not moving. That boat is constantly adrift in the water. And what prayer is, listen church, what prayer is, is our attempt not to manipulate God into giving us what we want, but our attempt at bending what we want toward what God has willed and taking the boat and pulling it closer to the dock. Because see, God's reality, what God envisions, His will, what He desires is fixed. Right? It doesn't change. It doesn't drift. It doesn't float off down the river somewhere or out into the reservoir. But the boat, the world in which we live, is ever-changing, constantly shifting, being pulled with currents. And what prayer is, is our attempt, God's means that he's given us, to take the boat of our experience in this world and pull it closer and closer and closer to the dock so that our life, so that our church more fully represents the priorities of heaven and the purposes of God. That's what prayer is. It's about being more aligned with God's priorities rather than aligning God with ours. It's aiming to be persuaded to embrace God's agenda more fully and more readily at a moment's notice rather than persuading God to place a stamp of endorsement on our agenda. Prayer is not bending God's will to ours. It's softening our will into His so that the church becomes an ever-increasing reflection of God's kingdom here on earth so that as Jesus even teaches us to pray, May your kingdom come, your will be done here and now on earth as it is in heaven so that the boat would get closer and closer and closer to the dock. Because you and I live in this world straddled between those two places. Our experience in the world, which is constantly shifting and changing, and the fixed realities of God's kingdom. Prayer is not bending God's will to ours, but softening our will into His. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. And Jesus says, this is the means by which strongholds were torn down. Jesus says, this is the way 
in which generational sin is unraveled. Jesus says it's through prayer. It's through prayer that the fear of man, the fear of man loses its grip on your life. It's through prayer that you come to see who you are, not through the lens of modern political perspective, but you come to see who you are through ancient sources of wisdom and identity found in God's word. It's through prayer that heart work takes place in my life, in my spouse's life, in my kids' lives. It's through prayer. That's why Jesus says when he goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers, he says, my, my father's house is to be a house of what? Of prayer. Of prayer. And listen, church, what would it look like for our church to be a house of prayer made up of lots of other smaller houses of prayer. So that your house would be a house of prayer. My house would be a house of prayer. That we would acknowledge our helplessness and throw ourselves at the feet of God in dependency. God saying, God, would you do what only you can do? Because God, I'm tired of the fear of man in my life. Would you vanquish it? God, I'm tired of pride overriding my relationships. God, would you overthrow it? The insidiousness of pride and its destructive influences. God, I'm tired. I am weary of lust. God, would you destroy it? Would you replace it with that which is pure and lovely and honorable and praiseworthy? God, I need you to do that in my heart and in my mind. Prayer is the means of grace God has given us for this battle. So how does that express itself? Let me give you four things and we're done. First, quickly, corporately, corporately. Now listen, I believe with all of my heart that the preached word of God is the rudder that steers the church. I believe that a church will not move in one direction or another apart from the preached word of God from the pulpit, from us standing week after week and expounding the scriptures in a way that gives clarity and direction to our path. But while I believe that the rudder that steers the church is the preached word from the pulpit, I want you to know that wind that fills the sails is prayer. It is prayer. Because again, we can have all of our theological T's crossed and I's dotted and still not have power. Because we're not a people of prayer. Listen, back during the shutdown. I was so encouraged by the handful of people who showed up week in and week out on Wednesday nights as we corporately called the church to prayer. People who shared the realities of their own situations. People who shared what they knew was going on in a neighbor's life or in a friend's life. People who prayed for our church and for our elders. I was encouraged by that. But can I tell you, as your pastor, and this is not for me to heap guilt or shame on you, I was highly discouraged by the lack of turnout for those prayer gatherings. 
And listen, I know it may have conflicted with things that you had on your calendar, but it made me wonder, is prayer so little of a priority for us corporately as a people that we're not able to rearrange our schedule one night a week when we ain't got anywhere else to go or nothing else to do to come and pray together? To pray together. What if the old adage that is known amongst pastors in churches were to be overthrown and overridden in our church? And the adage is this, listen, if you want to gather a large group of people, feed them a meal. If you want to get together a small group of people, call them to pray. Corporately, church, what if we were a house of prayer? Second of all, communally. Communally. Right? Praying together as life groups. Some of you are enriched weekly by the study of God's word and the application of those, those truths that come out of the sermons on a week-to-week basis, whether you're meeting virtually or whether you're meeting in person. But what if some weeks in our life groups, we just said, you know what? We, we, are, we are full. We are very full. We've been fed well with scripture, and so we're going to devote this time just to prayer. What if once a month in a life group we said, we're just going to pray, and we're not only going to pray about our personal ailments, but we're going to pray about life-altering, darkness-shattering, church-transforming, and culture-changing realities that only God can do, that only He can bring into fruition. That we would pray not only corporately, Big C Church, but communally together in our life groups. Third, in our families. Praying for things to become realities that could not be apart from an act of God. Right? Praying for the fruit of the Spirit in your relationships together. Praying for self-control. Praying for patience, praying that the Spirit would bear the fruit of gentleness in your interactions with each other, that it would bear the fruit of gentleness in your interactions with those in your family, and those in your neighborhood, and those in your church. And then fourth, personally, cultivating habits of prayer in your private time with God and asking for God to change things in you not just around you. See, oftentimes what I find myself sliding into is this tendency to pray for God to change things around me, but not in me. And I wonder how many of us, our sanctification has been stunted, our growth in Christ's likeness has shriveled because we've been praying for everyone else to change, but not for ourselves. Not for God to open our eyes to see. Not for God to open our ears to hear. And not for God to remold and reshape our hearts into the image of Christ. Listen, if prayer is a daunting thing for you, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to a series of sermons I preached a couple of years ago entitled Teach Us to Pray. You can find that on our SoundCloud and iTunes podcasts. And work through the Lord's Prayer there in the Sermon on the Mount and be taught how to approach God in prayer. Because I want you to know, the mission and the unity of the church is at stake. Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. I'll leave you with this, a quote from John Newton, who wrote the great hymn, 
amazing grace. In another song, Thou Art Coming to a King, he says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. So let's ask right now. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning that you, through the death and resurrection of your son, have overcome the powers and principalities, the rulers of this present world. So God, help us not to wage war against the issues in our lives, against the sinful issues in our lives, the sinful issues in our church, the sinful issues in our culture. Help us not to wage war against them with the weapons of flesh and blood, but help us to tear down strongholds with resurrection power by the Holy Spirit through prayer. May you make us a praying people. May you make us a people who brings large petitions before you. Because we know that your grace and power cannot be exhausted. But God, could it be that we as a church have but begun to scratch the surface? Could it be that we as a people, that as individuals have begun to scratch the surface of the kind of change that you would bring about if we were to fall to our knees, not only in our closets together, but also across video platforms and in living rooms and in services and in prayer nights, that if we would bring our petitions to a great king, and acknowledge our helplessness and prioritize prayer. That the world might be able to look at the church and say, why aren't they fracturing along these same fault lines? Why are they willing in humility to consider others not just their own interest. Why is it that there is a brotherly affection, a tender heartedness within the church? Why is that? God, I know that will only come about through prayer. So may your spirit stir us to do it, even as your word calls us to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.